Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about Canada land and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures and it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support Canada Land. We need you to. And so for this month and this month only, you can become a Canada Land supporter and get everything our supporters get for just $2 a month. That is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month, and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com slash join. And thank you. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health, CAMH. It's never an easy call with so many problems in the world to know where to direct the money that you donate when you want to help out in this world. But what I can tell you is that when you donate to CAMH, you're saving lives. We know about the opioid crisis. We know about the mental health crisis. They are doing the work. Help change mental health care forever. Your support will help CAMH build a future where no one is left behind. Donate at CAMH.ca slash CanadaLand to help us treat addiction and build hope. This episode is brought to you by Squarespace, the easiest way to create a beautiful website, blog, or online store for you and your ideas. Try Squarespace at squarespace.com and enter offer code CANADALAND at checkout to get 10% off. You're, you're in the middle of it, aren't you, Paul? I am. And I've got the stamina and I've got the strength because I believe in the truth. Where to begin? How do I prepare you with what you need to know before you listen to this interview with Paul Watson? If you read my interview with him, that was an article on the Canada Land website shortly after he resigned from the Toronto Star. Or if you're experiencing this all for the first time, either way, you are probably wondering what the hell this is all about. It is a very complicated and confusing story, and it is more confusing because we don't know the whole story. So what is the context? What is the background I can provide you right now? Should we begin with two shipwrecks, the Franklin ships that went down in the Arctic in the 18th? I don't give a shit about shipwrecks, okay? They're, they're ships. They They sunk. People, this is a snapshot from a shitstorm. This is all still happening. We don't know everything yet. 
So what am I trying to do now? Why talk to Paul Watson now before his big expose that he quit the Toronto Star in order to write before that gets published? Why talk to him now? Why talk to you about this now? Because right now, as this story is unspooling, as the news is breaking, everybody involved is going off to their corner, to their camp, and there is all kinds of FUD and misinformation and crossed wires, some of it honest mistakes and confusion, some of it perhaps not. It's important to try to get some kind of bearing on this thing as it unspools. So I will just tell you what I know. In fact, I'm going to start by telling you what I knew before Paul Watson entered my mind as a player in this narrative, because this goes back some time. One of the first things I did for Canada Land was a video about the Franklin shipwreck expedition. And here is the angle, here's the media angle that I was interested in. It wasn't the Boy Scout adventure exploration shipwreck salvage stuff that got me interested. It was the fact that the CBC was caught selling news coverage. I I can't really... Mitigated. That's what happened. Blacklock's reporter, an independent news site, got their hands on this secret contract. There was an ATIP request that somebody anonymously knew what to ask for, and they got all these files. You can go read this contract now. I'll put it in the show notes to this. There's a contract between Parks Canada and the CBC that essentially boils down to Parks Canada gives the CBC about $65,000. The CBC agrees to give Parks Canada a bunch of news coverage of the expedition to find these shipwrecks. And it's very specific. It says they're going to get local TV news coverage. It says they're going to get a documentary on the national, which of course they did. There was a two-part documentary on the national about the effort to find these shipwrecks, which at the time was unsuccessful. It wasn't the most interesting documentary. And if you follow the email chain, the person who was sort of instigating this deal and forcing the CBC's hand into this deal uh, was Peter Mansbridge himself. Mansbridge sits on the board of the Arctic Research Foundation. Also on that board, RIM founder, the BlackBerry guy, Jim Belsilly. So these two guys are on the board of this uh, grown man's boys adventure club, and they are all about finding these shipwrecks. And so it was Mansbridge in touch with Parks Canada people saying, I'm going to get CBC into this, and then this contract is the result, which really I think was a major scandal that never happened. I think the fact that Parks Canada paid CBC, got this news coverage, was a big deal that nobody seemed to care too much about. Jennifer McGuire of the CBC posted a defense that just didn't wash at all. She basically said that the money wasn't for the coverage. It was for this joint website, this website that was a collaboration between Parks Canada and the CBC about the Franklin Expedition. You can go to this website. It's listed in the news section of cbc.ca. And uh, maybe that cost $65,000. But if you read the contract, it's pretty clear that this was about news coverage in exchange for cash. Okay, what else? I was also aware, before I knew anything about Paul Watson, that there was a major political angle to this beyond Parks Canada wanting good press for their shipwreck salvage expedition. This is a pet project of Stephen Harper's. It has been for years. The guy hasn't had a lot of sort of moonshot, big idea, national achievement things, but finding these shipwrecks has been one of them. And it's not necessarily a clean, benign, rah-rah kind of a thing because it, it dovetails with the claim on Arctic sovereignty, which is a major piece of Harper policy, geopolitical maneuvering against Russia. They both want sovereignty of the Arctic because of natural resources. This is one of the world's last great reserves of fossil fuels, it is believed, in the Arctic. So Vladimir Putin is there flexing his claim by having a submarine plant a Russian flag on the bottom of the seabed. And Stephen Harper's version is to have this grand multi-year expedition to find the shipwrecks. 
some other possibly relevant background to our conversation today. I am not drawing these connections. I'm just telling you a list of facts, things that I know to be true. We're going to find out the connection between these things as we go forward, I hope. Some other relevant background has to do with John Geiger and the Royal Canadian Geographic Society. Royal Canadian Geographic Society is the nonprofit organization that publishes Canadian Geographic magazine. So before I knew anything about Paul Watson, I knew that there were questions about Canadian Geographic's partnerships with the oil industry. This is, you know, it's our National Geographic. It's Canadian Geographic. And I found out some time ago that uh, this is all public information. They have partnerships with the Canadian Association of Petroleum Producers and Shell Oil. They do school curriculum together. I've since looked a lot harder at that magazine, and we're going to be publishing an article this week about these relationships between Canadian Geographic magazine, the oil industry, and various government agencies. But even before all this, I knew that that stuff was happening. And I also knew before any of this blew up that uh, Stephen Harper and his wife have come as guests to the Royal Canadian Geographic Society's galas. I know that Harper was made an honorary fellow of the RCGS. I knew a little bit about John Geiger, the CEO of the Royal Canadian Geographic Society. I knew that he used to be at the Globe and Mail as a member of their editorial board. I know that he took a buyout and then became the CEO of the Royal Canadian Geographic Society. I know that his wife is an editor at the Toronto Star. And of course, guys, underlying all of this is what I've known and what we've all known for a long time, which is about the muzzling of scientists, the muzzling of the civil service in Harper's Canada. It's something that I've talked about with many people many times on this show. It is harder than ever for scientists who work for the government, for civil servants of any kind, to speak directly to the press. They have to go through official channels that invariably filter through the PMO, and this is something that has been plaguing news media for a very long time. It's very hard to get information out, and I actually received word that when the shipwreck salvage expedition was successful and found one of these ships, there was like a lockdown that a lot of journalists found weird. There was like a gag placed on everybody involved. And when the official version of events was given to the press, it was given by John Geiger of the Royal Canadian Geographic Society, who has since been given some sort of honorific medal uh, from the federal government, I am told, for his involvement in this expedition. Okay, so that's all a bunch of stuff that might be relevant. Uh, And that brings us to Paul Watson. Who is Paul Watson? He is a very highly regarded Canadian journalist. He is a winner of the Pulitzer Prize. He won a bunch of national newspaper awards, the George Polk Award for Foreign Reporting, the Freedom of the Press Award from the National Press Club, a whole bunch of others, whatever that's worth. He is very well regarded for his years and years of reporting from hot zones, from conflict zones. He was the South Asia Bureau Chief for the Los Angeles Times. He worked for many years for the Toronto Star. And if you missed my interview with him on the website, he just quit that job at the Star because they put, in his words, a reporting ban on him when he started asking questions about the information John Geiger put out there about the shipwreck salvage expedition. They wouldn't let him report it, he says, and I've heard audio tape of Michael Cook, the editor-in-chief of the Toronto Star, saying that they were not interested in that story. Paul Watson also shared with me a letter from Jim Belsilly to the Ministry of the Environment CCing the PMO. So here is one of the biggest industrialists, one of the richest guys in Canada, very highly regarded and connected guy, Jim Belsilly, and I read the letter. He's saying to the Prime Minister, to the government, John Geiger's account of this shipwreck salvage expedition is wrong. It's exaggerated. It runs contrary to the truth. It's misleading Canadians. So that document exists. Seems pretty newsworthy to me. The Toronto Star has said they do not consider this a story of significant public interest. They've said other things that I found a little bit hinky. 
and other people have said things. Some people have been whispering to me, some people approaching me anonymously, other people approaching me with secondhand, thirdhand information saying, are you really sure about this story, Jesse? Are you sure about Paul Watson? Are you sure about his sanity? And then other people have said to me, are you sure that he isn't just scheming? Are you sure that this isn't a personal conflict between him and John Geiger, two guys who both are writing books about the Franklin Expedition? Is this maybe just about professional jealousy or a conflict of interest? So this is going to be awkward, but I'm going to ask Paul Watson about all of this stuff. Wait for it. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Joel Badman, Angela Yee, Tracy Glynn, Thomas, Matthew Brillinger, Jesse Bailey, Jeff Grant, Meredith Brewer, and Adrian Korskaden. Adrian, why did you decide to be awesome? Because the media shouldn't exist to support the establishment, and the best way to achieve that is for the listeners to support the media themselves. This episode is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. Trust is important. There are a lot of mattress lies out there, a lot of mattress liars and I, I, I didn't intend the pun, but it occurred to me that there is one as I was saying those words. Listen, I am not lying to you. Uh, I have uh, experienced the Douglas mattress. It is an exceptional mattress at a surprisingly affordable price point. It is a mattress that sleeps cool, doesn't have that weird thing in the summer where the mattress gets like an oven. It's a very good product. It's delivered to your house in a box. You don't have to go to a big mattress store. It is a medium firm mattress, which is what Canadians prefer, and it comes with a 365-night trial and a 20-year warranty. What more can I tell you? Douglas is giving our listeners a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Uh, it's amazing the things that we tell ourselves to talk ourselves out of getting help. Anybody who's actually gotten help knows that the process of getting things off your chest, of taking your stressors, your problems, and just like not letting them be bottled up, working through just conveying them to somebody, half of the battle is just doing that. You unburden yourself. And you know what? If you have a real mental health professional, no, they don't have magic bullets or magic words that make it all go away. But often they can help you see things a little bit differently and guide you to strategies or tools or to a new perspective that actually does help. As the largest online therapy provider in the world, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. Because you listen to this podcast, you get 10% off of your first month at BetterHelp.com slash CanadaLand. That's BetterHelp.com slash CanadaLand. This episode is also brought to you by Squarespace. Simple, powerful, and beautiful, Squarespace has 24-7 support via live chat and email. No phone support. Why do you need that? It's 8 bucks a month, and you get a free domain if you buy Squarespace for a full year. What Squarespace offers if you're building a website is responsive design, you build the site once, it works on whatever device, tablet, phone, computer, laptop, whatever you want to look at it on, it's going to look good. And every website comes with a free online store. There's a big library of really nice looking cover pages. You pick one that suits your business, your freelance practice, your personal website, whatever, and you plug in your information and your imagery and, and you've got a really good looking, slick, professional website. You can start a trial right now. You don't need to give them a credit card. You can just start playing with this thing and building your website. If you do decide to become a customer and sign up, enter the code CanadaLand and you'll get a 10% discount and you'll be showing your support for CanadaLand. 
Squarespace, build it beautiful. We spoke, and a lot of people read our interview, at an early moment right after your resignation from the Toronto Star. And this is a very complicated story. And to people who are just encountering this for the very first time, getting their heads around it and wading through it and figuring it out when no one can even agree on what happened is daunting. I get that. And so let's talk about demonstrable facts. I was under a six-week reporting ban. For six weeks, the Toronto Star said, you must cease all reporting in any way related to John Geiger. And I was advised by my union, if you, if you violate that order, you will be terminated. And uh-huh. there's consequences for that. So I respected the order. I said, will you lift the ban? They said no. And so I quit. And now I'm free to report the story. And so I'm almost finished. I'm, people have been very kind and supportive. And I will, I hope, and I'm quite confident at the moment, will reward their patience and their faith. They will very soon see a story which is long and detailed, and they will see this as a fundamental point. This is not about two sunken ships. This is about a broader problem in our country, and it's a serious problem. And this is not the first government to do it, but they have tried to perfect it, and that is tight control on information from experts in order to satisfy a political agenda. That's dangerous. It has to stop. We're speaking in these generalities and it usually goes the other way around. A reporter has specifics, and then we have the think piece conversation afterwards. And I think that that's where some of this has gotten clouded. We've covered on this show before, and it's been covered extensively elsewhere, the gag on science, the fact that government scientists now have to run through so many hoops that the connection between journalists and scientists is pretty much dead, and everything gets kicked over to the PMO, and nothing, even stories that are good for the government, don't come out in a timely manner. And and the the, the stance has been that that less information or no information is is better than just reporting what these scientists know. And this goes beyond things that concern climate change. You spoke about the inability of certain civil servants, and and part of the problem is you can't actually get specific because you haven't reported this story yet. And and then you talk about the star backing away and, and putting a ban on you. And people made the connection. And I can understand how they got there. In fact, I got there. I asked you a question about it. Hey, are you saying that the PMO has silenced the Toronto Star? No. I asked you that and you said, right. no, you'd right. be shocked if that right. were true. Flat, no. And, and there's, a simple, there's a simple way to explain this, I think. Um, this is a small country. Uh, in in the, the circles that the people were talking about move – it's incestuous and sometimes there are common goals. There mm-hmm. are people who are friends of, of your friends and I don't know what's going on here yet. I'm as confused on the fundamentals as everybody else. But I do know this. When you start to pull the threads and they'll start to – people will start to pull them more after I report this story. I'm not overselling this. I have a long career in which I've literally put my life on the line to stand up to the Pentagon, to stand up to genocidal murderers, to stand up to others for the truth. I've written a book about it. This is out there. People can find it if they don't believe me. I've put my livelihood on the line, which is harder, frankly. If you put your life on the line for the truth and somebody puts a bullet through your head, you're dead. You're not around to give a shit about it. I put my livelihood on the line And that affects my wife and my son. And I'm going to be around to watch them suffer. If I lose my house over this, 
if my son loses a good university education over this, that's my fault. But that's a choice I've made. And believe me, I don't make that choice lightly. So at the core of this is that the people who know, the experts, are silenced. They're the sources that that I have to deal with. There are a large number of people. I'm not going to identify them because they're scared and they should be scared. Are they going on the record? Uh, no, because they, they can't. Do they, they have documentation? They have documentation. Okay. I will, in my, my story will be based in part on emails, uh, documents, other very specific verifiable, verifiable facts. Can you um, and, and look, just for a second, part of the problem is those people can't stand up and safely say, I agree with Watson. It is a story of public interest, of significant public interest, and and I admire what he's doing on our behalf because that's what they would tell you if they were free to say so. And the second point is this. People think this is about the film because that's what Jim Balsley's letter deals with. That's not a large part of And that's all story. Geiger's responded to publicly as right. well. The film, I right. don't have anything editorially right. to do with the film. I, look, Talk to the filmmakers. Look, I'm a journalist of significant experience. I would never put my reputation on the line for complaints about a documentary film. The very nature of filmmaking is such that if you if what you make the film on the basis of whatever visuals you have, you gotta have a picture for every second. Well, that's right. Yeah. And if the visuals suck, then the film's gonna suck. Yeah. And for for logistical reasons and others, which will become apparent in the story, the visuals didn't match the truth, and therefore you make a film which is flawed from the beginning. But there are ways to correct that. Good filmmakers know how to do it, um, and they didn't in this case. They used the visuals to say something which is not true. But that's not that's not why I quit my job. Okay, so some specific there's questions. There's though. something a lot more viscerally compelling, and people will see it very soon. I can assure you. Can you document that lies were told? Yes. Do you know why? No. Where are you publishing? I haven't decided yet, but there are several offers, and I just spoke to somebody, a you know, group of editors who, who again, just like you, they said we're skeptical. We're supposed to be, and I said, please, even even if you take the story, do me a favor, be more skeptical than you've ever been in your careers. Because I want every fact of this to be riveted as tight as a rivet on an icebreaker. I know what I have and I know that there's no logical explanation for it because people will see there can't possibly be a logical explanation for it. And it is a cascade of lies and distortions. And when people read it, they will ask two questions. The first question is how could our government let this happen? That's the most important question. But the second question, if people are still not throwing things, you know, uh, I'm, I'm exaggerating, but if people are not so incensed that they just go out and have a drink, they will ask the second question is, why didn't the star want this story? When can people look forward to reading this? I, I aim to finish it by this weekend. Uh, I will sit on it for a weekend and then clear my head and come back to it. I hope it will be in the hands of someone who can publish it next week. Uh, but that will depend on some factors. I've got a few more holes to fill. Um, they're not significant holes, but I need to do my due diligence. This was important enough to put on the front page of many newspapers. This was important enough for the prime minister to ballyhoo about. It is an historical event of some significance that our government has put millions of dollars into uncovering the truth of. And if it's good enough for that and it's good enough to, to, to write a story to begin with, then it's good enough to get it right. If you have information that suggests that what we've been told about it isn't true, then figuring out why it wasn't true or who 
stands to gain from it not being true is a secondary concern to just getting to what actually happened. And I think at the basis of this and what made me give credence beyond your reputation, which I think is a factor that anyone would have to take into consideration, is that you showed me this letter from Jim Belsilly where it's not Paul Watson saying that the official version of events is totally erroneous. It's Jim Belsilly writing a letter to government, CCing the prime minister's office and saying – this is exaggerated. It runs contrary to the truth and it's misleading the public. And then he listed a number of areas in which the official account that had been presented was wrong. The public is confused because naturally enough, people will look at the elements of the letter that you've reported accurately, as far as I know, um, and they'll say, this is all about that. Well, th this isn't all about that. You have to have a pretty – big story to justify what's happened. And that's what, you know, I, I got to ask you about this, Paul, because this is what I've been hearing since this happened. I heard this a number of ways. I received an anonymous email from somebody claiming to be a colleague of yours at the Star, not in management. Of course. Expressing concern <laughs> about your mental health. Right. Uh, and I, in casual conversation with other journalists, say, Jesse, be careful because I've been hearing Right, of course. Hearing. I've been hearing that Paul's not okay. Right. And people can't understand why you would resign a six-figure salary, an illustrious career, a job that has seen you covering events that are arguably of much larger importance than this, why you would resign over this. And I think that some have come to the conclusion that you'd have to be crazy. Right. And others have said, well, if he's not, he's going to have to have the goods. Okay. So are you crazy and do you have the goods? I have the goods and I'm not crazy. And I've, you know, I've checked with people who know me. You, you say, you know, say people say this, but I come from the community of combat reporters. And that's not the folks you see on TV who are with the U.S. military on some base in Afghanistan. You know, when I started in this business way back, you know, late 80s, I used to go on vacation to war zones. You know, call me crazy. I'm crazy because I went on my vacation to war zones. I was interested in, the, in this side of the business and I wanted to learn about it and see if I could do it. And so I did it on my own time. In that community, and, and this, it's a very, very small community of, of journalists who do what I have always done, which is you get in a soft vehicle, a car, you got maybe a guy with a pistol under the front seat and you've got a translator and you don't really know who these people are. You don't know if they're going to sell you to the Taliban or whatever or to ISIS or who. When you – work in that world, you put your life on the line every day and you ask yourself, why am I doing this? Am I doing this because I'm an adrenaline junkie? Well, maybe in the beginning, but not after a few years. The, believe me, the buzz wears off. And then you say to yourself, why am I willing to die? Because you watch friends die. I'm not trying to sound like a martyr here, but I've lost a number of close friends. And when they die, and then you go and do it again. You say, why am I doing this? The reason you're doing it is because you believe in the truth. That is the core of, of my existence. I think that people have trouble understanding how difficult it would have been for you to make the other decision. Well, that's, that's a very good point. You were reporting the story as you report anything. You were independently looking at, at facts. The civil servants told you that there was a discrepancy between what they knew to be true. You had the Jim Bell silly letter. And so you start to say, well, how did this uh, – what, 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 uh, what happened here? And you made the call to John Geiger, 
And then you uh, write an e- right, email, but calls to his organization. Okay, you spoke directly to his communications person. You reached out through all available That's means right. to John Geiger That's for comment right. to get his That's side right. of the story. And rather than get, hey, let me clear this up. Let me, let me talk to you from a fellow journalist. You got a call from your editor. That's right. Or an email, but, he, uh, right, which you, escalated. Yeah, right? let's be as specific as we can. Sure. Uh, th- thank you. Uh, sure. you, you. You were you were very quickly contacted by your editor. Uh, and you suspected, though you didn't know for sure, that, that there was a relationship between the, 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 those two events. And you were told to stop reporting it. So I think it's hard for people to understand, but I can kind of get it, how egregious and perhaps impossible it would have been for you to say, hey, okay, I'll stop asking questions. Right. It's just impossible. The, let me explain it to you this way. People know me for the picture of, of a fallen soldier. This is not easy for me to say. Um, a guy named uh, Staff Sergeant William David Cleveland, who was the, the crew chief, they call him. Uh, that, that means the guy operating the, you know, the 50 cal or whatever it is, machine gun, mm-hmm. in the doorway of a Black Hawk helicopter. People will know this day, October 3rd and 4th, 1993, through the book, which is superb, called Black Hawk Down, and the movie... I read the book, but I couldn't see the movie. It, it, you know, it goes to a place I can't handle. Yeah. Um, the day that that happened, the photograph is of the remains of a, of a U.S. soldier, uh, right? He, being dragged through the streets, and this is right. the photograph that you won the Pulitzer Prize for. Precisely. Now, people don't understand because most people don't know that a few weeks. I think it's roughly three weeks before I made that photograph. The, you know, there had been a, a massacre of journalists in July of 1993. I knew most of them. I think I knew all of them. Um, and, you know, that, that just sticks in your head. They're among many people I know who died trying to report the truth. So flash forward to September – um, most journalists have gone. There's literally, I think there were maybe three, five of us left. The number that were actually going out onto the street were pro- probably less than that number. And a Black Hawk was shot down. Same way, they had changed the fuses. Uh, it turns out I've later reported and you know, discovered and reported in my book that, uh, that al-Qaeda operatives had infiltrated, not infiltrated, they'd come to assist um, this is a, a, a demonstrable fact that al-Qaeda, before anyone really knew who they were in the West, were working with Somali militants. They taught them how to, how to you know, change the fuse on an, a rocket-propelled grenade, which is designed to hit a solid object and explode. So they had airburst RPGs. They fired them at the tail rotors. It sends out shrapnel. The, the helicopter goes into a spin and smack into the ground. So one of these things had landed in an alleyway. So we went out. I took photographs of people with human teeth in their hands, strips of scorched flesh, burnt pieces of military uniform, none of which proved that these were Americans. You know, they, mm-hmm. I, I really believe in facts. Pe- people, people I'm, I don't take this stuff lightly. So I said, OK, you say they're Americans, but how the hell do I know? It could have been a Somali interpreter on that helicopter, etc. Because the story they were telling me was – we, we have parts. They were mm-hmm. quite proud to say we have body parts and we're parading them. So the, we said, where are the parts? They were in a place called Bakara Market, which was the core of uh, General Muhammad Farah Idid. He's the warlord they're trying to capture. That's the core of his support. I knew from previous experience, uh, I hate, you know, this may be too much for people to hear, but I'll tell you, 
the one of the journalists who was killed in that July massacre, a friend of mine, was put on display in Bacara Market. And I, you know, I won't describe it, but in horrible ways, put yeah. on displays, on display to, to to satisfy the bloodlust of people who had been driven so deep into into anarchy. And and you know, the, it's hard for people to understand what anarchy really means, but I've witnessed it. So I knew you. I can't go to Bakara Market. That's impossible. So I sent my fixer, who I trusted like a brother, because I'd worked there many times over a period of a few two or three years. On and off, in and out, but I knew this guy, solid guy. So I said, you go to Bakara Market, come back, tell me, and I'll report it. I didn't send a camera with him. He came back and he said, I saw the body. It's a torso. It's in a burlap sack, and they're taking it around and opening it up, and they made me pay money. They made me pay U.S. dollars. I looked at it. It's white. It's scorched. It's a torso. It's got you know military uniform on. I'd say that's an American. I had a deal with with Reuters because they they pulled other people out because the uh, you know a number of the people the journalists killed in that massacre were Reuters personnel. So they said everybody out, but they left their office there with a satellite phone and a bunch of stuff. And I had a deal with them: if you let me use your satellite phone, I'll phone you anytime I have news. So I did that on that day. I had pictures of people with flesh and teeth which I gave to Reuters. I had the report from my Somali fixer who I, I reported by name as the eyewitness. Uh, I can't tell you how fast it is, but it's a verifiable fact. The Pentagon, that story went worldwide. Within a few hours, the Pentagon issued a statement that said, and I almost, I think I remember the words precisely, there was no basis in fact for reports that American body parts are being paraded through the streets of Mogadishu. That's in September. If they had conceded that that was true, I firmly believe Staff Sergeant William David Cleveland would be alive today. If I had had photographic evidence uh-huh. of a torso in a burlap sack, uh-huh. America would have, would have gone crazy and said, end this nonsense. Uh-huh. But they didn't. They denied it. So when October th- – the, the, you know, I lived through October 3rd, that nightmare – uh, almost got killed. You know, we, we don't have time for the for the details. But the next morning, my crew came to me and they said they've got a, a live American. And I said, we got to go out there. And they said, you no way are you going out there. You don't understand. This is not, you know, Mogadishu on a bad day is a pretty frightening place. Yeah. But they said, no way. This is off the charts. This is not what you're used to. Because the you know, those helicopters are still flying away. They're looking for live Americans. They're firing all over the place. Any, any group of people of any size is going to get shot, especially if they're dragging a corpse. Um, if they, you know, the, the Americans were going you know, just crazy because this was too much. They said, no way you're going. And I told them they called us liars once. Don't let them do it again. Yeah. <laughs> You know, here, here I go again. I go back to that place. I'm not mentally unstable for people listening to this. Just understand it's post-traumatic stress. It's got nothing to do with what I'm working with now. But when I go to that place, it just, there's a little switch and it clicks and it's, it's hard. Yeah. But, but this was about the truth. So I finally persuaded them, guys, we got to get out there. So finally they said, okay. So we, you know, we gunned up and went out there. And we found the corpse of Staff Sergeant William David Cleveland. I take no pride in this, none whatsoever. I apologize to his family. I apologize to anyone who's ever worn a uniform. But when I tell servicemen, as I have over the years, the first part of that story, which most people have never heard, 
They thank me for it. They say, thank you for telling the truth. I was, I was trying to honor good people who were going to killed, be killed the longer that lie was perpetuated. So, you know, flash forward to today. The, there is no choice for me. When someone tells me you cannot report that story, it's just not a choice. You said in our first interview, people know the truth. They're just waiting for the evidence. That's right. You know, and, I, and I, maybe I'll rephrase that having think, you know, that, that sort of implies that they, they know the truth on the basis of nothing. People know the truth on the basis of what they know. They want us to give them more evidence. Well, it resonated with me. I mean, people don't know the truth about everything, of course. But, it, you know, I often get this uh, response of like, oh, everybody knew that. And I said, well, you knew it, but now you know it. That's right. There's proof. The emotional response to your photograph and the ethical questions it brings up, well, you were standing there, what was going on? But to hear it articulated of, of what the point was of getting that document, of making it irrefutable and what happens when the truth is, is out there but it's not firmed up and a journalist hasn't done their job and it's not irrefutable and how it can be contradicted and, and how sickening that is when you know it to be false. Right. At, at some point, just, just so you know how difficult this is for people to get. Yeah. Somewhere some years ago, Christian Amanpour, you know, a producer called me up and said, Christian wants to do something. You know, you know, Christian Amanpour is CNN. She's a big shot. Yeah, famous journalist. Right, right. Yeah. Uh, you know, a lot of respect. Uh, Christian wants to do a show about X. Will you appear and talk about the picture? So I told her the same story I just told you. And her response was, uh, you would go that far out of peak? <laughs> it's not out of peak. I believe in the truth. And, and good friends have died for that. There are actually people on this planet who are willing to die for the truth. They're still out there. Well, you know, you, you, you've been through these experiences and you've written about them and you've been open uh, about suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder. And I think that uh, that lends credibility to those who would draw your sanity into question. It also presents an opportunity to those who have to benefit by drawing your sanity into question. The other theory that, that has been floated by me is that this, uh, which is actually contradicts the insanity uh, theory, is that you are scheming, is that uh, John Geiger is a rival. He's working on a book about Franklin. You're working on a book, a book about Franklin. It suits your interests. You have a conflict of interests, and it suits your interest to discredit him. Let, you know, the, I'll give you the facts. Uh, I don't want to bore people, um, but it's ridiculous on its face. As I explained to John Hondrick, you know, board chair of Tor Star, which owns the Toronto Star, to every editor who would listen. And by the way, if it means anything to anyone, I ran this by my union. I ran it by their lawyer. I've run it by two other lawyers. Everyone agrees. I do not have a conflict of interest. I, I, I want to know what story you have because th these efforts to discredit your story before it comes out to stop you from reporting the story and then to basically come up with all these – Reasons you're crazy, you're trying to kill his book. <laughs> Can you believe this? Before I know the story. And, right. and I don't know, maybe maybe you have something against John Geiger. Maybe he... he, he, he I've may never met the man. I've never heard his name before. And frankly, I don't... Well, I have to be a skeptical journalist. It's possible that he butted in line at Starbucks in front right. of you. And I right. don't know what the hell happened. I, right. But I, the truth is the truth. So if... if right. and, and what lends credibility to me... And this whole thing is, A, Jim Balsilli seems to think that there's a big problem with the facts. Right. And by virtue of his wealth and who he is, it's a news story. Right. Right. So that's the thing. That's right. the, the, the but, red but, flag for me. Sure. Is that the star's response, the star said, we did not refuse to publish a story of significant public interest. Then you provided to me an audio tape of editor-in-chief Michael Cook refusing to publish your story, right, saying no. this is not a story that uh, we're interested in. So I went back to them. I said, well, what about this? And they said, yes, we did not refuse to publish a story of significant public interest. Well, they don't know, do they? 
Because well, they, they never let me finish it. I think they do know. I mean, this is why I believe that there's something here. The very fact right, that, right. that, no, that, I agree with that you. Jim Balsilli is right. challenging the prime minister on this makes this a news story. Right. So they didn't say – if to support the theory that Paul Watson is a personal problem because Paul Watson's having a mental breakdown. That's right. So then the stars – I'm not agreeing with you. I'm laughing. Let's, let's uh, pursue that right. as a possibility. Sure. Uh, then the star's response would have been, well, we can't talk about Paul Watson. That's an internal personnel matter. But to the issue of whether we refuse to publish a story of significant public interest, uh, we are continuing to look at this story. And there are other people who are very uh, qualified to look at this Jim, Jim Balsilli information and, and get to the truth of this. We certainly were there at the beginning to report on the shipwreck expedition when it was a feel-good story and the Erebus was – so we're going to continue and we want to know if we got anything wrong. We're very concerned about that. That would have been their response. But to say, oh, this is not of significant public interest when I know that there's this Balsilli letter. And the second thing that was weird to me about their response is that they denied something that you never said. They, they said that you suggested that the prime minister's office leaned on them and they caved. And they said, well, that's a ridiculous suggestion. But I know that you I haven't agree. made that it, suggestion. And I agree it's a ridiculous suggestion. You said you, you told me that you would be shocked if that were true. And so that – that and then, you know, this is more circumstantial, but then you start to hear these whispers about your sanity. And I start to think the way that they're behaving to me is a red flag. It is not supportive of the idea that this is an internal problem with a guy who's having a breakdown, but there's something else to this. So I don't know what, right. but I, I, I want, I want to read the you. story. Okay. <laughs> Let me help you. Okay. The, 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 you know, again, I, earlier I think I said that the core of, of why I'm writing this story, why I'm taking – you know, I'll, I'll call it a million-dollar stand. It's not my salary anymore, so I can talk about it. I'm not violating any rules. Um, I was paid six figures a year. Uh, if, you, if you go out 10 years of what I had left – um, you know, after taxes, everything else, it adds up to a million dollars. Forget the money. You're gambling oh, your credibility right, on this. Right. No, you're right. And everything else. You're yeah. right. Paul, your story is about the discovery of the Erebus shipwreck and the way that the messaging around that was handled. My story is about what happened between you and the Toronto Star and what involvement, if any, John Geiger, what happened behind the scenes. My suspicion is that whatever you dealt with and trying to get to the truth in hot zones around the world might be child's play compared to figuring out who called who. Right. Well, I, I, I can tell you this much. This is not the first time that people have tried to discredit me. You know, I'm used to this stuff. It's bullshit. I, you know, the, it's trivial in my mind um, because I've lived through a hell of a lot worse, believe me. You know, I, I tell people – for years I've been telling people this. When things get rough, I say, look – you know, I'm not bragging. Um, I've been shot at, you know, I've been sniped at by professionals with real bullets who know how to do this shit. This is petty to me. But I do want, and you ask the question, will people find out? I hope that people find out someday because this has to stop. Yeah. When you have people trying to smear people like me simply because they don't like what I'm saying – that is a dangerous thing. If it happens to me, it can happen to you. Everybody, stand up. Say stop. Thank you. Thanks for having me, Jesse. And, and thank, you know, thank you for having this show because, frankly, um, people in my position have nowhere else to go. Paul, I can't wait to read your story. Okay, thanks. Thanks. 
That was your Canada Land Show. I hope you enjoyed it. You can email me at jesse at canadalandshow.com. I read them all. I respond when I can. I'm on Twitter at Jesse Brown. The website is canadalandshow.com. And the crowdfunding site is patreon.com slash canadaland. I make this show with Katie Jensen. New episode of Canada Land Commons on Tuesday. No episode of Shortcuts this week, but I'll be back with more Canada Land on Monday. If you like this show, please support it. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about Canada Land and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures. And it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support Canada Land. We need you to. And so for this month and this month only, you can become a Canada Land supporter and get everything our supporters get for just $2 a month. That is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month, and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com slash join. And thank you. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.